Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 20. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. I'm Jason Tackett. Today we are going to be discussing our hope in Christ and trying to wrap our minds around the rationale of those who would argue against that hope and try to say that we have no hope. I hope the Lord will bless this to your hearing. Now, there is no tenet of our faith that is without controversy. One would think that if we started talking about the subject of heaven or if we started talking about um, our expectation of something better beyond this life, uh, that this would be without controversy. People would not... People would not argue against it, but that's not the case at all. Not all enjoy the thought of a happy ending. In fact, the concept of a happy ending in and of itself is is a Judeo-Christian idea. It finds its origins in, in the story of redemption, which has been implanted in the human culture since the time of the fall. But cultures that have departed from the from the truth of God struggle with the idea also of a happy ending. Pagan cultures, for instance, have produced a lot of great tragedies, and some of them well worth reading, like the Medea and things of that nature. But they produce these great tragedies, but have produced little by way of happy endings. And the reason for that is the fact that their cultures have no basis for the idea of hope. When Christianity began to spread beyond its Jewish base, it brought with it the idea of the happy ending. Fairy tales that end with the term happily ever after. They lived happily ever after. Western culture forsook 
its hopeless tragedies in favor of the stories of redemption and the heartwarming tales of the happy endings. The happy ending in literature and the stories of our culture have begun to dissipate. Uh, I remember there being uh, a little controversy over, not controversy, I don't think that's the right word, but uh, uh, it was surprising at the end of a famous uh, sitcom, Seinfeld, that they decided not to go the route of having a happy ending for the characters, but instead ended the story with the main characters all sitting in a jail cell. That's, a, that's just one example of many. Our, our culture, as it's jettisoned Christian values, seem to also jettison the idea of real hope. We have seen in the last several decades uh, um, that the stories that divine our culture reflect the paganism that our modern and postmodern cultures have embraced and brought us to. The stories of our current culture are distinctly anti-Christian and distinctly hopeless. Pagan cultures don't produce stories of hope. Therefore, they cannot produce the happy endings. The same may be said for cultures that in doctrine and practice embrace materialism and atheism. When there is no morality, hope beyond this life, no purpose beyond what's happening right here and right now, no purpose beyond that, you can't really tell stories of hope. They can only tell stories that reflect this sense of despair. And the pattern of current stories end up being more of a tenure of Samuel Beckett's famous play, Waiting for Got It, which tells of friends, uh, two individuals at least, that futilely waiting for a friend to come who is not coming. In this vein, Paul stated the profound truth that if all the hope that one has in this life is only in this life, then we are most miserable. It's important when considering the the arguments that people level against Christianity and against the idea of hope, that those who level attacks against Christian hope are doing so from a point of despair. They embrace a worldview that offers no hope at all beyond the present moment and whatever happiness may be had in that present moment. They say, let us eat, let us drink, let us be merry, for tomorrow we die. It, it, it's this, this this point of despair that they are attacking Christianity. Um, for, for instance, uh, one of the great arguments for Christianity is that there is this hope. There is, there is, there, there is this, there is this, hope of heaven there is this there is this morality there is meaning there is purpose and if christianity is not true there is no meaning there is no purpose there is no real value 
And they will still argue and say, so what? What if the world is has no meaning and has no value? So they, they, they have lost all sense of truth and all sense of meaning. They have tossed aside any teleology. I can't say the word. Teleology. They have tossed aside the sense of morality. They rejected all sense of purpose and beauty because they have not God. And then when a Christian stands up and speaks of their hope, they can't allow that hope to be spoken of. It's contrary to what they believe. Even the here and now is becomes a nauseous thing in our society when they allow themselves to ponder the senselessness of it all. I think of John Paul Sartre, the famous existential atheist philosopher back in the 40s, 50s. Um, he wrote such stories as nausea, to depict the nauseating present of being no, of having no meaning and no purpose. Dostoevsky, who stated that without God, all things are permiss permissible, speaking of morality, hit on a truth that, that when we consider this part of it, is, is an even uglier idea. That without God, without the self-revealing God of the scriptures, all things are miserable. All things are intolerable. It was the famous, another famous atheist, existentialist philosopher of the contemporary of John Paul Sartre was Alberto Camus, which stated that the only real serious philosophical question left now that, now that there is no meaning and there is no purpose in anything, and once someone has embraced the absurdity of life, is the question of suicide. That's where their hopelessness have brought them. The hope of the Christian is an abomination to them, for with hope comes a worldview, with real hope that is, becomes this worldview that includes God and morality and truth. They are not content to be hopeless in and of themselves, but they attack the hope of others. Like, the, like Jesus said of the Pharisees, they shut the door of heaven. They won't go in themselves, but they won't allow anyone else to go in either. In the last days, it's, maybe this is the meaning there in Revelation thirteen six, where it says in the last days they will blaspheme those in heaven. Now, they just blaspheme the idea of heaven, but there will come a point where they'll even blaspheme those that are in heaven. Now, so in between the Christian and this crowd, though, that will not allow this idea of hope to be to be propagated, stands an unbelieving world. They're lost, they were without Christ, and according to Ephesians 2.12, they were without hope in this present world. And Peter told us, be ready to give an answer to them of the hope that lies in us. We have, we have a hope that the world needs to rescue them from this nauseating, meaningless ideology that grips them. The hope of the Christian is in Christ who rose from the dead. The hope of the Christian is distinct from this life.
from the here and now. We have something beyond here that we're looking for. The here and the now ends with our last breath and its hopes and its expectations end in the grave. Between here, the here and the now, is a life of suffering, which is, as was said of Job, a few days and full of trouble. The Christian looks for the eternal instead of the temporal. Everything we see will end, but we have a hope in a life that endures. Those who put their hopes in this life embrace vanity. That's one of the main things that Solomon brought out in Ecclesiastes. A vanity of vanity. All is vanity. All is vexation. However, what reasons do we have to believe in this hope or anything beyond this life? Our hope is first in God. Our belief in God is what makes ideas of heaven and hell and ultimate judgment possible and even probable. If God exists, then there is something beyond this life. Which, one, so, let me collect my thoughts here. One stands on good ground, rational ground, when they declare their belief in the God of the scriptures. And by doing so, they also stand on rational ground for believing in hope or having hope for something beyond. Such I, we've I probably argued these ideas again, and I'm not really wanting to get into arguing for the existence of truth, the, good, the existence of goodness, the existence of beauty, uh, the the existence of of all these things, teach us that there is a God, and there's this after and therefore we have grounds for this belief belief in the afterlife the exis there but there's other reasons for believing in the afterlife the existential longing for something beyond this life for instance demands it like the existence of hunger demands the reality of something to feed it so the existential longing for something beyond this life tells us that there's something there we could get into near-death experiences, and we can proclaim those, um, which uh, which may be an empirical way of studying. But all of this melts away when we speak of God, this God that is, that has made himself known in Christ and in his resurrection. He was risen from the grave, according to Luke with many infallible proofs. He was risen to die no more, and when we consider that truth, we have great hope. Hope in a life to come after the pattern of Christ. When attacking the idea of heaven, the idea of God and eternity are the first things that are attacked. God, however, as is properly argued under a different subject heading is necessary. So I want to deal with the tax on the idea of eternity. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. 
the universe and all things therein began to exist therefore the universe has a cause the cause of all things is eternal and uncaused so there is a god the cause of all is personal and that's our lord the next point they will argue then is the resurrection of jesus christ which again we've argued before it cannot be historically argued against jesus of nazareth walk this earth was reported to have done great miracles was put to death by pontius pilate um, by crucifixion he was buried he was reported to be alive by his followers the empty grave the myriad of witnesses that were willing to die for their testimony that they saw christ alive the early and repeated written eyewitness accounts the quick spread of the christian faith despite persecution at a time when it could have been easily refuted if it was false the myriads of other proofs can be argued time and time again we believe in the resurrection and we have good grounds for it The purpose of this is today is not to argue that again, but only to start with the resurrection of Christ and declare this hope. Let us consider the arguments against our hope. The first attack on heaven on eternity or heaven or whatever word we want to use to describe it comes and I don't want to get too complicated but it comes from this from metaphysics and attempts to argue against the coherence of the idea of heaven and I am going to try my best to make sense out of this just for the next few minutes it comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of what we call heaven itself and a misunderstanding of the nature of the resurrection. It is imagined that heaven is otherworldly. I think of the, of the lyrics from Rush's song, um, um, Free Will, where he said, you've been kicked in the, plate, in the face, but you can pray for a place in heaven or some unearthly estate. So they imagine heaven as this otherworldly, unearthly estate. It's imagined that heaven is this timeless, non-temporal, which is the same thing, existence that is nowhere real, or coherent like this life is, or like our physical reality. Now, C.S. Lewis, and I believe it was the Great Divorce, argued that heaven is more real than this life. This this life itself is is somehow less real than the real than the world to come. But they they would say that being timeless does not allow for that reality of those temporal acts that we do such as thinking or willing which they say demands temporality in order to occur a sense of a before and after and since heaven is outside of space and time they say heaven does not allow for us to express what is essential to our reality 
the, our sense of personhood, personhood that needs temporality to exist. Now, that's a pretty difficult argument to wrap around, so I, I want to just spend a few minutes. The argument is obviously Eastern being applied, Eastern philosophy rather, being applied to Christianity without warrant. They envision heaven as they envision the nature of God, timeless and impersonal. And, and the nature of God is timeless and it is eternal, but with God there is no beginning and no end. He is from everlasting, as the psalmist said, and to everlasting. And there is no one thing that is like God in that sense. Time does not allow us really to speak of the nature of time, I guess, under, and really, I don't really feel qualified to try to speak about the nature of time. However, it should be pointed out that timelessness does not exclude the possibility of intelligence, knowing, and communicating. God, the persons of, a, of the Trinity, loved from all eternity and communicated that love. Only God, though, is eternal and timeless in his nature. Only in the humble nature of his revelation unto us is God seen to be temporal. And so he'll ever be in world without end. I, I, I want, I'll speak more about the humility the humbleness of God as, as here in a minute but in the sense of his creation God has from the beginning endured or expressed himself to us in terms of temporality in terms of being temporal and it says thou shalt endure speaking of God so he will ever do so now, what am I saying? Heaven does not involve us experiencing timelessness, but rather it involves us having everlasting life, a continuance and an endurance through uh, time without end with God who is meeting us in that understanding. We do not experience eternality because we are not God. We are not eternal. For God alone is eternal. He alone inhabits eternity. But we will experience the eternal God forever through this everlasting endurance with him. I like what it says, what Paul said. So shall we ever be with him. It involves us knowing God as he is revealed to us in the humility of his revelation, his becoming temporal in our knowing of him. Now, I'm confusing myself, and I hope you will bear with me. The presence of God is heaven, and we shall be with him without end. 
but not in the sense of us being timeless. It will always be us knowing God in our temporal ways, in what is essential to our nature. It says of Christ, for instance, so that he ever lives to make intercession. It, he's enduring for us. It, it is through the advent of Christ taking on flesh that he is our intercessor and our high priest. It is in resurrected bodies, not in some kind of timeless spiritual otherworldly way, but in our resurrected bodies that we enter into this reality with God. We will never set aside the material. We will never set aside the temporal. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a material existence that you and I will know, and God will be there in a greater way than we know now. There will be things that we cannot imagine, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9, that he has prepared for us. Just as we can never reach an end by counting even intervals of time, so we will never reach an end of that world to come. We will endure, and he with us, we will ever be with the ever-enduring God of Revelation, learning more and more and more of him in perfect joy. So when the scriptures speak of time, they, what, what they're speaking of is opportunity. When it says that there will be no, no time no more in the book of Revelations, it speaks of a point in which opportunity to respond to the gospel invitation will be over. It'll be gone. There is no place in the scriptures in which a timeless existence is described for the believer. The chief joy of heaven will be incarnational. And what do I mean by that? It will be God dwelling with us. Revelation 21.3, God himself shall be with them. The incarnation of Christ was God taking on humanity to redeem it. Now being redeemed, the presence of God is with man forever. There will be a unity of existence. All things will be gathered together in one. The things in heaven and the things in earth. Ephesians 1.10 The new heaven and new earth will dwell together. God will be with us. Just as divinity was housed in the humanity of Christ, so shall heaven and earth be housed together. There, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That, however, speaks of resurrected glory. Like I said, we will have bodies. It will be real. It will be a real material existence and as I was saying about C.S. Lewis more real than what we know now and this is where there is a great amount of mockery by the unbelieving world
The scriptures declare we will be raised from the dead. The nature of the resurrection is that point of scorn. The Christian begins by arguing the reality of the hope of the resurrection itself. The Christian believes the witnesses of the apostles who declared that Christ is risen. They saw him. John says that which our hands have handled of the word of life. They, they saw him. They fellowshiped with him. They, they touched him. He was real. We will not here argue the validity of the resurrection the empty oh, oh, there's all these things that <laughs> that we've already talked about that are that that are there the, the nature of the res resurrection isn't the question that we're bringing out now but the nature of the resurrection what happened 2000 years ago is the pattern for us Christ was the first fruits that Paul said in Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And after that, us, we are going to, according to John, be like him one day. There are two, two great misunder, uh, extremes of this misunderstanding of the nature of the resurrection. The Gnostics taught that there was no physical resurrection, but in this, instead, the resurrection was only spiritual in nature. They rejected the physical resurrection due to their belief that flesh is evil and only the spirit is good. The spirituality of the resurrection has long been a heresy. Uh, the biblical writers themselves went out of the way to refute that ideology of Gnosticism. They they taught that Christ came in the flesh. They stated that that to say otherwise was to embrace Antichrist. Christ was not a spiritual being, but a partaker of flesh and blood, said the writer of Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. When Christ died, he died bodily. Therefore, when the resurrection was taught, it was taught as a physical reality. There was nothing spiritualized. The apostles spoke of, like I said, that which their hands have handled. It was part of a tangible reality. Christ himself went out of his way to prove the tangibility of his resurrected glory. He invited them to touch him. He said, see my hands, see my feet. Uh, said to Thomas, reach hither and put your hand in my side. Uh, he even sat down in Luke 24 and ate fish to show that he was not a spiritual reality, but he was flesh and bone. The Gnostics would rightly teach that flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul taught that uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. In the same context, though, the apostle Paul taught clearly that the dead shall be raised bodily. He said, this corruption shall put on incorruption. This mortality, speaking of the body, shall put on immortality. So the nature, the bodily reality of heaven is after the pattern of the reality of Christ's resurrection. The nature of that body will be greater 
than what is known today. But it'll still be real. It'll still be substantial. In fact, like I said, C.S. Lewis said, more real, more substantial. We shall be like Christ. Christ is the first fruits. We are the rest of the harvest. Christ rose bodily and lives forever to intercede as such. Now, what the unbelieving world has always misunderstood is the power of God in this matter. God, who created the whole universe out of nothing, is able to raise the dead. When the Sadducees asked that mocking question of the nature of the resurrection, you know, the, the question about the, uh, the seven brothers marrying all the same woman and whose who's wife will she be in the resurrection. So, but when they asked that mocking question of the nature of the resurrection, Christ told them in Matthew twenty two thirty that they do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And he went on to say what some Gnostics like to use, that we shall be as angels. Now that does, that are neither marrying nor are giving in marriage, that doesn't intend to teach that we will exist as spirits, but rather that we will be created to exist in a higher reality beyond the normal processes of life that we now know. God has created in this present world life to continue through procreation, through marriage and given in marriage, but he will bring us in a reality that life will just continue. God is able to take the power of God, is able to transition us through the resurrection to function bodily in a greater way than we can even comprehend. And Christ is that pattern of that reality. When Christ arose from the grave, it did not only testify to the truth of the claims of Christ, but it opened up in a real way this hope of real immortality. There had been stories of miracles of people being raised from the dead only to die again. But when Christ was raised, he was raised to die no more, Romans 6, 9. And he intercedes for us as one who has the power of endless life, Hebrews seven ten. The message of the Christian is that Christ lives and because he lives, we shall live also. One of my favorite verses of John 14, 19. What then is the nature of this resurrection? We know that it was a physical resurrection of the very same bodies, and it will be so with us. Our bodies will be changed, according to Paul in Philippians 3.21, to be like his glorious body. It'll be real. It'll be tangible. Just as the seed is of less glory than the whole wheat, which springs from it, so the reality of our resurrection 
will be greater than what we know now. Think think of it. Uh, the, it was the, the comparison of the seed that Paul also brought out in 1 Corinthians 15. You put one tiny kernel of corn in the ground, but something far greater springs from it. Christ in his resurrected body was able to appear in locked rooms. The limits of, imagine a body that is not limited uh, to space and matter the way we currently are. I have heard physicists speak of the possibility on a quantum level of bodies passing through solid matter and still being bodies. The possibilities are even greater than that, though. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, it will, what we have right now is weakness, but what we'll have then is power. What we have now is mortal and corruptible, but what we have, what we'll have then, is immortal and incorruptible. Christ ascended to heaven before the eyes of the apostles, and promised one day he'll come in like manner, the ability to transport in an instant from one place to another. It will be greater than the physical reality that we have now. It'll be a spiritual reality, a spiritual body, a body sustained by the might and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Christ shined on the transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was luminous. He was light. Daniel says in the resurrection in Daniel 12, 2, that we shall shine as lights, as stars forever. We will each have a glory unique to ourselves. And that that is just a menial outline right there of the glory of Christ's resurrection. And we are going to put that on one day. We have a great hope. A hope that is sure and steadfast because we're talking about reality of Christ's resurrection and our hope that one day we will put that on. So there are mocking attacks that come with this on the physical nature of the resurrection. The common belief is that we are what we are bodily. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists still believe that the soul is the body. Uh, the common belief is that's what whatever we are bodily is what we are. The question of identity is then raised by those who would mock the resurrection. After all, on a on a molecular level, every few years we are molecular on a molecular level completely different physically uh, through cellular regeneration and so on. The biblical view, however, teaches that we are. What we really are is not equated with the physical. The physical body is the house, the tent, the sheath of the soul. And we will be housed in something greater in the next life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The question of our physical identity, though, was not lost on the biblical writers. Listen to what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 15.35. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? 
with what body do they come? Certainly we, we believe that this very body that we bury will be the body that will be raised. That is why we in faith bury our dead. It was this belief that the same body we put in the ground is the same body that will be raised, at least to some extent. Uh, that's the same with Christ. He says, it is me. Look at the holes in my hands, uh, the wounds. The same person that was put in the grave was the same person that rose. The modern attack has to do with the question of what body is raised. I've heard it argued like this. Um, suppose a man dies and his body, B1, is buried. After that, another body, B2, is resurrected at a different time. Is there any reason for believing that B2 is the man, is that man and not just a replica? Of course, this makes the materialist error of equating our identity solely with the physical. Without the existence of the soul, the atheist is at a loss for describing what constitutes the continuous nature of the person. Am I a different person than I was when I was seven years old? Well, no, I know I'm not. But physically, I'm completely different. But yet, I have this real stream of consciousness, if you will, uh, if that is the right term that we can use. Um, we all know ourselves to be the same person that we were when we were small children. And our personal awareness continues whole throughout our lives. We may be completely different on a cellular level, but we are still the same because we endure. We endure because we are spiritual beings. Therefore, the, mo the mocking scenario ignores the spiritual dimension. The identity of a person is a spiritual trait. And yes, there's physical ideas too, like I have the same scars that I gained when I was... But it's not just physical. The identity, the true identity of the person is spiritual as well. It is possible that someone can be the same person even in a different body. Regardless... Paul answers the question in a different manner, and I don't. I had to think about that last statement a little bit. I think it's important for us to realize both, both the physical and the spiritual dimensions that we're in, and thus the importance of the resurrection. But regardless, Paul answers the question in a different manner. He says in First Corinthians fifteen thirty six to thirty eight, "Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die." And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be but bare grain. It may chance a wheat or some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. There is a difference between the body of the seed that is put in the ground and the body that is raised up. Obviously, that, like I said earlier, that which is raised up is greater. If our bodies are burned as they have been an acts of insult by the enemies of Christianity throughout the centuries, I think of Wycliffe, for instance, and the ashes are scattered and absorbed the world over, God is still able to raise them again. In order for there to be a resurrection, 
there only needs to be a death and some part of that former body to rise again. The body that is put into the ground is not that body which is raised. It may it uses the remains of it, but it becomes something very different, very much greater. When a corn of wheat is planted, what is planted is not the body that is raised. That which is raised is greater. It is, in the words of Paul, sown in dishonor, corruption, weakness, and a natural state, and raised in incorruption, glory, power, and a spiritual state. It is only necessary for resurrection, for the resurrection, that the body be physical and that it derives somehow from the body that was buried. The rest lies in the hand of God. God gives it a body. Paul said elsewhere, For we know that this earthly house of this tabernacle, if it were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens, that speaks of the glory of the resurrection. We are going to be clothed with a physical body one day. And that's the reality of heaven. It'll be physical as well. Just as real, more real than what we have now. Eternal in the heavens is what Paul says. Or rather made to dwell with him that is eternal. With God, all things are possible. So now that I've muddied the waters with things that I've struggled to understand myself. Let me get to a little bit more practical uh, areas of of attacks upon our hope or or heaven. And the the next realm of attack is not just to attack the coherence of the idea of our hope or the idea of heaven. It's to attack the morality of the idea of heaven. This too is split in two different parts. They attack the morality of those that are in heaven and the morality of heaven itself, or rather God. To the latter, the atheists will renew an old argument regarding the problem of evil and suffering, but will use it rather in a different way. The atheist has a problem with a world of suffering, but refuses to recognize the reality of sin and the moral freedom of man as being causative to suffering. They choose to use suffering to deny the existence of God. They, they renew it with fervor, this argument when the idea of hell is breached, and a Christian rightly argued at that point that a world of suffering is possible due to human liberty. Mankind can choose that which is evil as, as a result, may suffer both the natural consequences of their, those choices as well as God's righteous judgment upon it. To deny any of these tenets would be deny the objective morality of, of the object, 
I can't talk, the objective reality of morality itself. This is the atheist, or this, it's one of the things that they're willing to do in most circumstances until someone commits an immoral act against them and then all of a sudden they get righteously indignant and say that that person has wronged them in some way. But immorality is impossible to deny, but they do it anyway, as we have seen in our other studies. But one such occasion that turns them into absolute moralists is when they condemn the idea of God. They are quick to condemn God for what they believe to be immoral acts, not realizing the irony of their stance. The subject of heaven draws such moral outrage as well. The thought is that heaven proves that God could have created a world in which man is free and there is no suffering. And I got to admit, when I heard this argument, I was taken back for a second. I had to think about this one for a little bit. They feel like this argument renders the free will argument null and ultimately proves that God does not exist. Now, the latter conclusion is definitely an overreach. Morality is one of the strongest proofs for the existence of God and the price of denying God is the denial of morality, which is an unlivable position, as Dostoevsky pointed out. Nevertheless, does it call into the question the free will argument for suffering? Further, does it call into question the existence of heaven at large? Before we answer those questions, let us consider the morality of those in heaven. Do they have moral choice? And if so, is the possibility of evil and suffering also a reality in heaven? Those are some of the issues brought up by the subjection of the atheist. The one that is The one thing that all Christians seem to agree on is that sin will not be a reality in heaven. Speaking of the New Jerusalem, it is said in the book of Revelation that there shall not enter into it anything that is an abomination or makes a lie, uh, but only those that are written in the book of life. We, We will be made free from the vileness of our flesh. That's the teaching of the scripture. We will not be hindered by the normal sinful desires and temptations that we know in the present evil world. The tempting thing at this point is to say that there is no liberty in heaven. The atheist would see heaven like a a cult-like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. (laughs) This attack... But this attacks the permanence view of heaven. If we are free, then we can leave or fall. It is only in the mind of the scoffer when liberty is taken away that one can remain sinless. Heaven is seen as a prison in which one must do what is right. 
However, there is nothing in Scripture to suggest that we become automatons in heaven. We received Christ freely, and heaven is the everlasting consequence or extension of that decision. We will be like Christ, who freely died to receive us unto himself. We will never be something less than what we are now. We're going to be greater. To say that we will not have a will is to say that we become something less than what God created us, something less than the image of God himself. God forbid that we ever adopt such a view. Our volition will be, our, our will will be as free as it is in this life, more so. We must remember that we in this life are not absolutely free right now. We can only freely choose those things that are in the realm of our possibilities and circumstances. And by the way, God is sovereign over those possibilities and circumstances. That does not mean that we are not free, though. All will still exercise a will within that world, too. In salvation, we believe that we cannot choose to be born unborn again. <laughs> we, we are in grace, and our will does not extend to us being able to choose otherwise. Now, that's much more of a Calvinist idea, and to maybe some that are listening are not convinced of that, but if I can convince you of the security of the believer now, I would, but that's beyond the realm of, of this discussion. Well, one of the follies here is the belief that somehow sin must be a choice in order to experience freedom. Adam was free in the garden, in fact, he was more free in the garden than he was before he than he was after he sinned. Adam was free in the garden without eating the fruit. When sin entered, it did not make him more free; it made him less free. That was the lie of of Satan himself, and it's still being perpetuated today that somehow sin, the choice of sin, is what makes us more free. And it never is the reality. It makes us, it puts us in bondage. Heaven, then, is as free as the garden was without sin. Absent the probationary law. We will have freedom in heaven to always do that which is right. We will be absent any occasion of sin. Sin in life breeds bondage. We will know the truth in its fullness. We will be free indeed. We will know forever the hideousness of sin. And just as we know right now, while we have a sound mind, that we should not grab up a poisonous snake, we will know not to choose wickedness there. We will be in truth with no desire to put ourselves back into lies. We will be absent the vileness of the flesh that compels us to sin. 
tempter of evil will be bound. And in addition, we will know God in his fullness. And we'll have no desire to leave for something less. Still, we can grant the argument that freedom allows for us to choose wrong in some circumstances. Maybe this is so. The Bible is silent on this matter. We know that our lives will be sustained by God in heaven. Freedom to make mistakes in a realm of perfect love and forgiveness through Christ is no impediment to out to the joys of heaven. We will ever be learning, we'll ever be developing, we will ever be growing in knowledge and perfecting the love and the knowledge of God. Consider what Psalm 94.12 says, Blessed is he whom the Lord corrects. We can expect that that blessing will continue on forever that we'll ever be learning of God, and we may, as children growing, stumble, make mistakes, and have the loving guidance of God to correct us. The one thing that we are guaranteed is that we will forever have the right to the tree of life. Revelation twenty two fourteen. We will never be kept back from life. Heaven is the great reward of those who choose God through Christ, a place where they can freely grow for all eternity future in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is a place where they can know and enjoy God forever. And that brings us back to the question of the morality of God. It appears on the surface that heaven is the best of all possible worlds. It is a world where man is free, and yet there is no suffering or even the possibility of suffering. So the atheists ask, If God could have created such a world, is not God immoral to have created this world instead, the world that we now live in where suffering does exist? Does this not destroy the free will argument for the existence of suffering? We might argue that the best of all possible worlds includes liberty, for only such a world allows for the existence and exercise of love. We are ready to state that heaven, as described, is the best of all possible worlds. God saved his best wine for last as in a miracle of God, of Christ turning water to wine. We have argued that freedom allows for wrong choices. We have never claimed, though, that God created the best of all possible worlds when he created this present world. The best of all possible worlds is yet to come. The reality of the first created order shall wax old and a greater shall come. The Garden of Eden itself was not the best of all possible worlds. The Garden was probationary in its nature, as is this present world. The desire and will of God was to bring man into that which is certain and not that which is probationary or tentative. 
The free will argument is meant only to show that a world in which love exists necessitates choice, which allows for wrong choices to be made. What the atheist gets mad at, and this is important, what the atheist gets mad at is that they believe that God should have created for them the best first. They should be free to sin and free from any judgment or consequences of sin. The probationary or tentative nature of the first world puts choice before all people. Do they want God or do they want sin? God's nature of holiness will not allow them to have both. We cannot, he can't deny himself. They do not want God. That's the important part. I like love what, what, uh, what uh, Paul Washer says, uh, everybody wants to go to heaven, but most don't want God to be there when they get there. They do not want God, but they want, do not want to face the consequence of that choice. They pretend to be offended at the suffering that is the result of sin, when what they really are offended at is they cannot sin without consequences. They want heaven without having God. However, they were created by God. Nothing was created to live independent of God. And that's sin is a choice. Every sin is a choice to be independent of God. Yeah, God could have created heaven first. He could have created a world where there is no suffering or sorrow or tears. Yet, People are free to love and enjoy Him and dwell in His presence. However, God decided to create the best of all possible worlds for those who freely chose Him. God is not immoral for creating a probationary world first. God is not wrong to save the best world for those who freely desire Him. The argument for the possibility of wrong that exists with the reality of freedom is not destroyed. Shh, my dog's barking. Freedom will look different in the probationary world than in the certain world, but there will yet be freedom. It will exist there. In the first, man is allowed to know the depths of his evil choices. In the last, God is allowed to freely enjoy the presence of God whom he chose. That's the nature. We remember heaven is for those that love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 I had not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. That brings us to one last attack on the idea of heaven or the idea of our hope. The last attack is this idea of fairness. The fairness of the idea of heaven. They say, heaven disproves the goodness of God by making it a merited reward. If you hear someone attack heaven, that's usually one of the first things they'll say. The Christian must 
qualify what we mean by the word reward. This word is not meant to convey the idea that one earns heaven by their works. Various forms of universalism teach that heaven will be earned eventually by everybody as a reward of their suffering. This makes heaven the inevitable fruit of people through their own works. The teaching of scripture, however, is that not all will go to heaven. Some of them make the difference between the lost and the saved as a reward of works. Why do some people go to heaven and some people go to hell? Well, because some people are better, they will say, or believe themselves to be better. They imagine that some will, by their own efforts, earn heaven by various acts, and others will miss heaven because they fail to earn it. Heaven is for winners. Hell is for losers. The objectors would say, There is nothing that our modern age hates more than winners, and nothing that cheers more than for the loser. And I'll have to admit that I myself usually choose to root for the underdog. That is why this modern misrepresentation can't talk. This modern misrepresentation of of salvation is hated. The devil is cheered in Milton's great work when he says he would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. However, such a view of reward is a false one. While we experience in heaven, well, I can't talk, while the experience in heaven may differ based on works, the entrance into heaven is unmerited based solely on the new birth. God chooses to give heaven to men and women simply based on his grace alone. He allows heaven to be entered by those who will believe and trust and seek him. But he but even that, even their believing and their trusting and their seeking of him is unmerited. It's not because there was some great thing in themselves. It's because of his grace. While heaven is a reward, we are careful to say that it is an unmerited reward. It is a gift that is freely given and freely received. The atheist still cries that this is unfair. If a father choose to give, chooses to give gifts to some of his children and not others, then that's unfair. They assume that this is an apt analogy for God. However, God is the creator of all things, and he's the sovereign, he's the king. He is free to dispose of his grace as he pleases. As Paul says, I will, as Paul quotes from Moses, really, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's the prerogative of God. If he chooses to give his grace to one beggar instead of another, then who can accuse him of wrong? We praise him for his grace. 
even if he did not bestow it on all. We do not look at God as being under any obligation to save anybody, to give grace to anybody. That would destroy the idea of grace. A father may be obligated to do good things for his children, but that analogy does not apply to God. There is no true Christian belief of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all men. Man orphaned himself by sin when he declared himself to be his own God. Christ said to the Pharisees one day in John 8, 44, Ye are of your father the devil. God is said to be the father of those who are his children by faith. The analogy would be better stated that God is like a king that freely gives of his riches to whom he wills. It would only be unfair if the beggar could argue that they deserved to receive from the king. It still may be argued that heaven is unfair, for it is faith that lays hold of upon grace. It is believing that reaches out for grace. Are there not people who, due to circumstances, place, and time of their birth, that have never heard of Jesus and never heard of the Scriptures? They could not believe, would be the argument. Why should they miss heaven? Why should they be judged for their unbelief? This argument, though, underestimates the guilt of men. Everybody knows there is a God, and they know that they are sinners before Him, and therefore, as Paul said in Romans 1, without excuse. They know that they ought to seek that God, but they would not retain God in their knowledge. They would not believe the light that God gave them, they were not thankful, and then they vainly set up and worshipped creatures instead of the Creator. And that's the argument of Paul in Romans 1. That, brief, that briefly is the history of all people. Whether they have heard of Jesus or not, they are guilty. The idea that there are sincere non-believers is a myth. Men do not seek God because of a lack of evidence. God is revealed in their conscience. God is revealed to them in the nature of things that are seen. In the reality in which they live, God is there. They could have sought him. When Cornelius sought God, God sent Peter to preach the gospel. When the Ethiopian eunuch sought God, God sent Philip to preach to him in the desert. That's the kind of things that the God of grace does. We remind ourselves that for all the sound and the fury of the atheists, they argue from a position of hopelessness, and they prefer it that way. They bluster with arguments that God is immoral in some way, not because they really believe it, but because they want to justify their unbelief. 
They desire for the here and the now. So they sold all hope for the future. And they want you to get rid of your hope too. They want their heaven now. And they are mad that they cannot have it because of their sin. They want to be God. Since they rejected God, they reject heaven. They reject all hope. God has decided in his wisdom to save the best wine for last. Their hope for the here and now is nothing but misery. Our hope is secure in the risen Christ. receive something from the Word of God today and then somehow this this has been a blessing to you as I fumble around these ideas. We have a great hope in Jesus Christ. Until next time, Lord bless.